On this episode of Remedial Studies, we're going to be discussing um, Mark Danielewski's House of Leaves pretty in-depth. That is going to include some spoilers for major plot points, some major reveals that happen near the end of the book. So if you want to still read it and haven't yet, you might want to avoid this episode until you do. Um, And also, we are going to be discussing kind of in-depth some issues regarding um, mental illness, if that's something that is not your jam, if that's something that's going to make you uncomfortable, um, you might want to skip this episode. And with that, let's get right into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of a new podcast from me and my buddy Hannah. Hello. Um, It's going to be called Remedial Studies. It is a show where we give our probably very biased and very bad opinions about things um, that are not usually given a whole lot of respect from the academic world. Um, We will be giving them a lot more respect than they deserve. And we will also be, um, for lack of a better better phrase, probably talking a lot of shit about things that are given a lot of respect in the academic world. Uh, As I've said many times in the past, I cannot wait to rub my glittery hands all over Bukowski. We'll probably be taking James Joyce to task at some point. Yes, I really want to talk about how much I hate Joseph Conrad. Like, I'm not even going to front that that's an academic thing. I just hate this man. Yes. That's going to be a lot about this show. The line between our academic fury and our just righteous fury is going to be very thin at best. There, I don't have one. (laughs) I don't. It's the same thing. I'm sure I'll get there. So, Rachel, do you want to tell our already, I'm sure, just enamored (laughs) listeners? Enraptured (laughs) is the word I would use, Hannah, but okay. Do you want to tell them a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. Uh, my name is Rachel. Um, me and Hannah both uh, live and work in Northeast Ohio. I am in my second year of um, a master's program. I'm getting my master's in English um, so I can learn to pontificate like an ass even better than I already do. Um, I have a BA in English literature. Um, eventually, I'd like to get a PhD and teach at the college level so that even more people can be subject to my shitty, shitty opinions. What about you, Hannah? Well, I uh, I have a master's in library science that I am not using. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm your basic basic white girl. There's really not much more to add to that. Yeah, that is like a blanket disclaimer we want to put on this show. Is like we are both like basic white females, so we will do our best um, to police ourselves as best we can. But like. Sometimes, don't be afraid to take things we say with a grain of salt. Also, you can add us, but don't add us about <laughs> our voices. Especially, like, my voice is much more shrill than Rach. Don't, don't at me. Just don't at me about the way I sound. She Please is don't. like that in real life. It's not the microphone. Yeah, yeah don't. add us about <laughs> stuff that, like, actually matters. But if it's about, like, what our voices sound like, just, just keep it to yourself. We're not about it. Not about it. Use your best judgment that I wholeheartedly believe that you have. Hannah just made a very non-committal hand (laughs) gesture. It's an audio-only medium, Hannah. (laughs) They will have to live with that. (laughs) You'll eventually hear... I cannot wait until we get to the point where we just communicate explicitly through, like, hand and and eye signals. And someone somewhere will still want to listen to that, I'm sure. No. (laughs) No, that's not a thing. 
So do we want to talk about uh, our first yes. subject for this week? Um, our first subject um, is, you're going to have to help me with the name hand because I cannot say this man's name to save my life, um, is the novel House of Leaves by Mark Danielewski. That is the pronunciation I have also been using, but you cannot trust me. Yeah. You can add us about pronunciation because apparently both of us have been saying Nietzsche wrong our entire lives. Yes. Yes. There's no, do not try to cram a Z sound into that name. That is not, that's, that's not, not how, correct. That's not how that Z works, apparently. Um, but House of Leaves, um, for those of you who are unaware, um, is a book published, and I believe it was 2001. It is weird, um, to put it mildly. I, I've heard a couple of different people that I know who've read it describe it very differently. Most people seem to agree that it belongs in the horror genre. Um, I've seen um, people think of it almost as like um, a parody or some kind of satire of like academic writing and the, again, that sort of peacocking pontificating that kind of comes with that. Um, What was your opinion of the book when you read it, Hannah? I mean, I don't know. It's a weird book and it's really hard to like you know, it, the the first sentence in that book is "This is not for you," right? And it's re- it was really hard for me to invest myself in a book where it was like obviously no, that's true, it's not yeah. for me. Because because I think uh, if I rem- if I'm remembering this correctly, I don't know what level of degree he got at UC Berkeley, um, but Daniel Lusky like went to Berkeley, like he got an M. I think believe it was a master's. Don't quote me. Do at me, but don't quote me. Um, <laughs> he. So there's a part of me, and we'll get into this a bit um, as we go on, that that can't not believe that he is aware of how like loaded, and in, in the in in regards to like the history of critical theory, that like that statement is like this isn't for you, and it's like Roland Barthes needs like a circular coffin so he can just roll. Roland Barthes wrote this really interesting piece that kind of turned a lot of the critical community on its head where he talks about the death of the author and how, like, once a book is written, in essence, it stops belonging to the person who wrote it. Um, So I feel like that first sentence is kind of like a big opening salvo of that whole concept. The book is almost based on the literal death of an author. Well, right. The book opens with the death of, again... Who knows how to pronounce this, but I've been I say Zampano. Uh, yeah, something of like Zampano. Zampano. I always forget if Zampano. it's a P or a B. It's a P. Zampano is probably how I'd say it. Uh, anyway, that guy. Uh, the book literally opens with him dying and Johnny Truant, which is a heck of a name, finding essentially this insane text uh, that is essentially House of Leaves and then yeah. going from there. Because I think the book's full name, when you see it on, like, the title page, is the way it's set up, and I'm going to do my best throughout this episode to kind of describe how things are placed in the book, so we've talked about that privately, but we feel that's all very purposeful, how he actually sets up the book. Yes. Is, like, the big opening title spread is, like, the first page at the top, it's, like, Mark Danielewski's, and then House of Leaves, but, like, that cover page on the next page is almost like a cover for a totally different book. Yes. Where it says it's like House of Leaves by Zambano, edited by Johnny Truitt. Um, so it's kind of like a book within a book, and then there's Johnny's notes. And the actual book, House of Leaves, is a book written by this Zampano guy, who, which is about a film. 
That does not exist. Does not in exist. In this world or the world of Johnny Truant. Yeah, because Johnny Truant can't seem to find any evidence that it's real. Yeah. Uh, so that's a whole thing. I think where I was, where was I going to go? I was going somewhere. Oh, I really took issue because I feel like throughout the book, Daniel Lewski is like telling you like things about your reading experience. I'm like, don't, don't tell me how to live my life. Don't make those choices for me, Mark. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I'm not about that. Like, I think there's one, I think I, I texted you while I was reading Rose. I was Mm -hmm. not okay with him being like, there are books you need to read. Like you can't read too fast, but you can't read too slow or you'll miss the meaning. And I'm like, yeah, which also I think kind of ties into the whole theory part of it, which is that, um, you have the two kind of big camps um one of which was split into many many smaller camps but there's like the humanist theory which really focuses on like um close reading and the author's intentions and like the 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 creation of meaning is not necessarily a relationship it's just an event that has already happened by the time you pick up the book um and people really started to kind of take 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 issue with that in the advent of like structuralism Deconstruction, especially with um, Jacques Derrida um, and his whole thing about signs and signifiers, which we'll get into later. And, like, people saying, like, well, that's all fine and good, but, like, meaning isn't just what this person wrote on this day when they wrote this book. Right. It, it's something that is more malle- malleable than that. So there's a part of me, like, with that particular line that feels like he's making kind of a joke. Well, I think the thing, too, is that just, like, when you think of humanism in, in the house and the book, like, yeah. no, yeah, no. no, there's nothing, it, it's, I don't know, there's a lot in that book that it's, like, it is a very strange house, I guess. We'll it is a very that. strange house, because, because the house in, in the sort of grand tradition of, like, on the house, um, on Haunted Hill by Shirley Jackson, the Red Rose miniseries, which was, um, written with Stephen King, like, the, the whole long history that's almost kind of gothic horror, gothic romancy of houses kind of being their own characters. No, I think that's very gothic. That gothic is, yeah. romance, gothic horror. I think, didn't, there's something, and if if I could find it, maybe we'll put it in the, we're going to do a bibliography for each episode, but there's a Tumblr post talking about, like, how when men write gothic horror, yes, it's I know what you're talking external about external forces, but when women right gothic horror it's, it's always internal like yeah. the interpersonal and it's interpersonal horror yeah it, it's sort of the difference between uh like like what's um horace uh walpole i think is how you say his name i forget i think it's the castle of a toronto um is like considered the first gothic novel and i remember reading it and to me before i read that book in college most of my introduction to gothic literature, gothic horror, had been almost exclusively female writers. Mm-hmm. Um, the Brontes, um, especially, um, even like Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, which is sort of a parody of that kind of literature. But like Jane Eyre, Rebecca, uh, books like that, where it is it, the whole action takes place almost entirely within the mind, and if it isn't within the mind, it's within the home. Mm-hmm. There is no crazy. Extra yeah. super net. Well, I mean, it's it's it, but it's not like right. Which I think is very interesting if you apply that further to House of Leaves because the monster that is very heavily implied to be a, um, a minotaur in the part of the house 
that sort of rebuilds and expands itself, it's kind of ambiguous at times whether it actually does harm anybody or if the fear of it is what causes the other people to harm other people. Right. Yes, that's left pretty much entirely... Because they never see it. And whether or not the monster exists at all is exactly. another point um, that is never, that's also open-ended. I know this is on, this book is, to get really basic, White Girl, <laughs> is actually on some Pinterest lists for books that are actually scary. I was very scared throughout some of this book, I'm, but also like for personal context, like I find things like haunted houses very scary. Um, I really enjoy reading them because it's the kind of scared that I like where it's like, like with books, you can close, you can close it and walk away. I don't know. I think it's about like how we've spent literal centuries, like perfecting the indoors and like (laughs) protecting ourselves from the dangers of the outside world that when our homes and our places that are supposed to be sort of like sanctuaries are, are invaded by these forces. That's something that resonates really deeply with me for whatever reason. And I know I'm very afraid, personally, of getting trapped in a cave. Yes. So this book really played into that phobia because they do get lost in the house. Yes, I felt there's one scene closer to the end where Navidson, who is the main character of the book, House of Leaves, within the book, the House of Leaves. Sort of. Sort of. Um, is he is trying to find his way back to the house proper, which is what he is knows is his house with his family. And he has to crawl through this space that's like getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the way Dan- Daniel Danieluski kind of shows that is the text itself gets more compact and there's fewer words on each page and it all just goes down to this little square. And I like felt myself start to like hyperventilate. Because I felt so constricted. And I know it's not real. Like, I was sitting on my couch, sun shining, birds tweeting away. But it, 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 he's very good, and I think it's very purposeful as far as the layout of the book um, with manipulating that with text, that kind of emotion. I mean, I didn't... I don't know. I think to me, like, I... Because the manipulating the text in that way mm-hmm. is so artificial, in a way, like, you have to do it on purpose, that, like, it yeah. felt, it took me out of the narrative a little bit, because, like, yeah. I'm focusing on the formatting of the page, not necessarily, like, my feelings. Okay, that's fair. So, I mean, I definitely was not as much of a fan of that and didn't think it was as cool yeah i'm like i don't know what it was i bought into that i bought like majority stock in that idea and that's how i hate different different strokes for different (laughs) folks right right uh the other thing that i think stuck out to me with the formatting is i remember in school i don't know if you ever ever had this experience Mm -hmm. of studying concrete poems where i feel like we did but i don't remember it very well right well because they're not real quote-unquote literature Mm -hmm. whatever capital r capital l whatever that means Uh, we've both taken, have we both taken canonicity? I didn't get to take point? canonicity, but I feel like I did because you've told me so much about yeah, it. Yeah, I took a can, I took a canonicity class for both of us, so I have very strong feelings about quote unquote real literature. And I remember a conversation I had with somebody about the, the whole idea 
of capital C classic. Right. And how it is almost at this point a marker of a book that you're just you're just not going to enjoy when you're in high school. And I, and I think some of that might just be what you have to learn in high school. Like what is kind of dictated by both like the AP board, different, different school systems. Is like you're supposed to be able to do ABC and the, 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 I think it's a good idea to read novels and things that aren't like just written from an AP packet. To learn how to do those things but I think if you don't also explain like this is an example this isn't like the best book ever written I have yet to come across the best book ever written but I'm looking forward to it I think that that's what makes that that kind of attitude towards teaching that I don't think people do out of any kind of malice or anything like that like they don't set out trying to make people hate reading because why would you teach it if you were like that I mean, I don't know why do they teach the Scarlet Letter if they don't feel that God, way. God, I hate, I hate Nathaniel. Nathaniel Hawthorne's going to get like a series on this podcast where it's just going to, no, Hannah's not going to be here. It's just going to be me <laughs> for like three 40-minute intervals saying how much I hate Nathaniel Hawthorne. I hate him. Did he? He, he, he taught, the, the one thing I remember about Nathaniel Hawthorne is he was a raging misogynist and he... No. <laughs> You never know. Um, but he got pissed when he wasn't selling as well as his female contemporaries who were all writing, like, I think they were all writing novels at that point. And he, like, Scar- I think it was, it was Scarlet Letter, or, like, The House with Seven Gables. It was one of the two that he's more well known for. Um, wasn't selling very well. I wonder why. I know, right? So he went to his best friend, his BFF for life, Herman Melville. And um, speaking of people who didn't sell well in their lifetime. I wonder why. I wonder why. I've tr- Side note, tangent, I've tried with Moby Dick. I've tried. I've given it the good old college try like three times. And, and, and I think it's like... Can you get it in graphic novel? <laughs> I, I got it as like a comic. And like the story itself, I feel like is fine. Like, the actual, when you set out and look at all the events that happen, it's fine. It's putting in all that stuff about the whales so you can tell us about, like, how God only has power over nature, not man. I'm like, I get it. Herman, I get it. But the thing is, like, uh, Bartleby the Scrivener is probably one of my favorite Yes, I love stories. his shorter fiction. Uh, but... I've never attempted to read Moby Dick. That seems like a commitment that I'm, un- I'm, re- I'm not prepared to undertake right now. Like, I'm just not emotionally mature enough for Moby Dick at 26. I'm 26. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not emotionally mature enough for Moby Dick right now. I, I had, I'm almost sad that I read it when I was 18. I had to read it for um, AP English 12 because it, it was our teacher's favorite book. No shade to him but um it but some shade a little bit of shade like tiny tiny amount tiny amount of shade i feel because because here's the thing and this is something i do legitimately feel i feel like your favorite classic you didn't see the velociraptor air quotes i just did but they were there um can confirm can um i think that says a lot about you if only to the other people you're telling that to yeah i don't know I don't know. I don't know that I have a favorite classic. Maybe we haven't met yet. I don't know. It's not Maybe. anything by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Not anything by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, I think I read Portrait of a Lady. That's by him, isn't it? Oh, I think I thought that was Henry James. Oh, also, no. No, to him. it's not. I can't. No, neither of them are okay. We're not. You're right. It's by Henry James. I read that for 
um, an AP class in high school, and it was just the most painful thing I have ever experienced. One, yes. because it's much longer than a scarlet letter. Yeah. At least a scarlet letter, it's like, there's an end point. There's light at the end of the tunnel. It's yeah, gonna be over. Yeah, it's a shorter novel. Um, and then to turn that back, like, that was a little bit how I felt about House of Leaves, where it was just... It just a kept commitment. going. It was a commitment. It was it was a thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, I couldn't read it at certain times of day because it is kind of scary. Like, I couldn't mm-hmm. read it too close to bed. I didn't... I, you had to have enough time to set aside a whole chapter because chapters were really the units of craziness in this novel. Like, right. They at least existed. It would not be readable if that kind of craziness existed over multiple chapters. Exactly. Like, like, like I think... I think you're absolutely right, and I think it's almost structured like like the acts of a movie or the acts of a play, where they're all very self-contained in the specific kind of crazy that is available to them. Like, the two main escapades into the house, which is the one that has the footnotes that go on forever, and yes. the one that Navidson does by himself, where he's he goes, or it's Navidson, and then I can't remember the other man's name, and I feel terrible for that, but that's okay. Um, Holloway? Holloway. Yeah, Holloway. Holloway is the other gentleman. But there's the one that has all the footnotes where it's like they kept going in and out of different turns and there's staircases upon staircases and hallways upon hallways and they end up getting lost and Holloway ends up shooting somebody and that that whole chapter is very visually crammed. Like you're seeing, what is that painting? That it, it's it's like an exercise in like perspective where you have all the stairs going around each other. Oh, yeah. It's it's referenced in the book because Daniel Lewski has no chill. But he mentions <laughs> Escher. He does have no chill. Um, He mentions Escher a lot in yes, the book. Yes, yes. Um, it reminded me very much of that painting. Um, and then in the next chapter, when Navidson goes after them in the house, it's all big open halls and big empty spaces. And the, the scene that made kind of like my stomach drop not because of anything that was going on visually on the page, but, like, the content of it was when he was standing at the bottom of the stairs and the whole thing just drops. Right. I think that was both, like, we both read that section and had, um, like, a vertigo, like... Yes, vertigo. That's exactly what it felt like. Like, we were just like, whoa! (laughs) Because I I could picture that happening in my head and my, my stomach just, like, just dropped. It was terrible. Right. Oh, should we tell them that I don't have a mind theater? I feel like that's yes. a fun fact. Um, so, brief <laughs> personal context. Personal context can be a section we do. Um, me and Hannah are in a Dungeons & Dragons group. I am the dungeon master. Hannah plays our wonderfully chaotic um, human paladin, Ren Silverscale. Um, and Hannah has had a little bit of trouble with some of D&D because she does not have a mind theater. She cannot visually... Um, imagine things in her mind. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So I'm one of two percent of people, and this is something I didn't learn until I was 25. That oh. other people can see things in their minds if they want. So the <laughs> so that was a really weird experience. I thought it was just all like a figure of speech, like everything about picturing something in your mind's eye. Like, but and you all thought we stuff. were all just in on it? I thought this was. I thought it was an elaborate like. <laughs> metaphor like oh you know no like pull yourself up by your bootstraps there are no actual bootstraps that's true 
It's just you don't actually have a mind's eye, but you do. Yeah, you do. Most people do. So that, um, did that, do you think that affected your reading? I wonder if maybe that's why I didn't buy into the, um, to the formatting because it didn't it add may have anything. Been. Yeah, because me. if you can't picture how this house is changing and how that's being represented on the page, it's essentially like, meaningless. <laughs> yeah, like like that that makes total that makes total sense then that I would like really be into that and you wouldn't and you wouldn't necessarily be into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. It is definitely weird, and people are like, "Oh, I'm so sorry for you," and I'm like, "Could you stop?" Don't like like there's feel a, there's like a whole that. bunch of other shit that could be wrong with you that is. Much worse than that. Well, yeah, and this is just on, like, the scale of natural, like, variation in a population. I also right. have a biology degree. I guess I should have mentioned that in my intro. <laughs> Probably. Is that I, ha- I do have a science degree, and I am a, I'm a very big fan of heart sci-fi and Isaac Asimov and those cats. Mm-hmm. So that impacts my critical analysis quite a bit. And also, yeah, you, you will bring that perspective. I will not. Yes. I have no chill about... Uh, the uh, arbitrariness of, of genre lines, mm-hmm. no chill, and and really that. So I mean, we've talked about genre a little bit with this being a horror novel. Mm-hmm. Technically, I that's the thing. I I think to me, if we're gonna put it in a genre, that makes the most sense to me. Is yeah, horror. I mean, there are times I read it and I was horrified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I guess it 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 all comes down to your idea of what horror means. Because especially now, especially if you look at horror film, there is so Which I don't. there is so much. I talk as if I do. There's so much within that umbrella. Caveat: We don't actually know what we're talking about. You should we always about... assume we don't know what we're talking about. It's all an elaborate hoax. Um, is it that that elaborate as no. me? <laughs> um, but with with horror, and this is. Just going off my personal experience, I'm not the biggest fan of the horror film genre. Um, but you have the two kind of camps I always put it in is like the, the horror that comes from the outside, like you look at the slasher film mm-hmm. as a genre. Yeah. And then there's the horror that comes from like the interior, like whether it's a mind or like a personal space. Like I look at that more as like The Shining. Right. I don't know. I'm not a big horror person. I don't understand the desire to spend time, like, being frightened and, like, it plays into my paranoia and, like, needing to check the locks five times. Yeah. I've been told by my cousin, um, who loves horror films, I've been told that it has something to do with catharsis and, like, being able to turn off the TV and walk away. And I'm like, but it's still there in your head. The second thing I wanted to talk about, um, because I know you kind of want to talk about the not unreality alternative reality in little ways that he kind of oh right works right, through yeah. um, i remember specifically the one you talked to me about was the photos of the union or the the, the union versus the confederate right soldiers. there's like a section right off the bat where he lists because it comes up that like maybe the the movie the navidson file is actually an elaborate hoax and not a documentary and he mm-hmm. lists a lot of um things like the Cottingly fairies? Yes. And one of those um, things are, uh, he mentions this um, this photographer from the Civil War who took, who, who is famous, he took pictures of, um, it says in the book that he took pictures of the Union dead. And when in actuality, 
that photographer is famous for forging pictures of the Confederate dead. Okay. So that's like page one. We have, yeah. I have already do not trust <laughs> this yes. person. Um, I also started tracking down um, their extensive footnotes. Uh, and, Very and, extensive footnotes. And I'm a librarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, by training, if not perfection. By training, if not trade. Yes. Uh, so I started uh, tracking down some of the footnotes. I'm like part of the way through. Um, maybe chapter one. There's so many. I don't know. A lot of the footnotes are not made up. Mm-hmm. Like the there they are definitive texts on whatever he is talking about Mm -hmm. but there are a couple that I've come across that are just obvious not obvious phonies but I think that's the point is that they're not obvious yeah they're like just with it enough right so there's a point where the one that I have found most recently was um he cites a guy who turns out is not a science writer Mm -hmm. he is an American composer Oh. Uh, and he put the article, and I believe it's called McLean's, which is a Canadian Newsweek, essentially. Oh, man. Which is not, I don't know, would you cite Newsweek for I your wouldn't. academic paper? Not right. for academic papers. Maybe for something else, but not, not certainly right. not for Right, not academic. your doctoral thesis. Yeah, no. I, I, would, I would elect not to do that. I only went for stuff that I could tell was real in terms of tracking... Sources like if it's obviously about the Navidson file, mm-hmm. um, then that's not real. Then I, well, it's not real. Uh, we think, uh, <laughs> but I, I think my my takeaway from this is one: there there are kind of two options, which are that you're messing around with the idea that maybe people don't always check their sources, or maybe they don't read things, or maybe mm-hmm. they pad their bibliographies a little bit i think that's fair because i i do think um and this is not my idea i read it somewhere unfortunately and i don't remember where um was somebody had this idea that house of leaves was an elaborate parody of Mm -hmm. of academic writing because it is obtuse yeah and it is dense almost unnecessarily so Right. Um, and obviously, it, it's a work of fiction, but it follows that same model. Like, um, the, the part where I really started to notice it is when they were talking about when Navidson took all those samples from inside the house, and they went into all, like, the scientific jargon of, uh-huh. like, what was found, and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. See, I did know, because I do have You do? So you have that training. So you would know. Here's me with my degree in, like, Shakespeare, where I'm like... Can we talk about King Lyrics? I can add to that conversation. But but this... So, like, to me, I had no choice because I wouldn't even know where to begin with how to fact check that stuff. But because you do... Yeah. Um, you have that training. That that chapter is, shockingly, the, one of the most incomplete chapters in the book. Yeah. I wonder why. Uh, because that stuff... I will, I think it's honestly easier to fact check some of that stuff because... Mm-hmm. It is it's science. It's not like I don't know. Yeah. So I think it makes sense to me that he would include sources, even sources that he's written is true within the university's building. In this, even stuff that is about the Navidson record, there was a whole chapter that was just about these three schools of these people that oh, had, yeah, that had that presented all those papers. 
and how they were fighting against each other. And there's a part of me that was like, yes, I live for this academic drama. But there was another part of it that's like, it was so clear to me. He's just sitting back from his like laptop just laughing at these people. And how, not how into it they get. Because I don't think he's making fun of people who care. I think what he's doing is he he's taking, it's kind of like satire. Where he's taking that extreme and those like blinder blinders on kind of attitude that I think you can get um to its extreme. I don't know though because I feel like the field of psychology literally went through that exact. Yes, it did. Thing where different schools totally dominated it for a while and then a competing yeah. school would come up and it and it was like that in the book, but I feel like I I think that section for me really demonstrated how reductionist having a, a theory or a model about a work yeah because can what wasn't be. wasn't some of it about how it addressed this but not this it accounted for this but not this yeah um, I don't or know. or it, it put everything into one basket so to speak and it's yeah. like I'm pretty sure in reading like just a description of this film that there is a lot of different things going on and i i don't think it's as useful i mean it can be useful to simplify things Mm -hmm. because you can't look at everything all the time but at the same time like you you need to acknowledge that there's multiple things going on i feel like a person who writes something that so staunchly parodies academia probably would view even what we're doing right now as kind of reductive like it's kind of hard not to be um, but I know you want to talk about Karen. I did want to talk about Karen. Karen is very interesting to me. I, I like, like interesting is the best word I can think of. I did not like her in the beginning. Oh, you didn't? I did not like her. And, and I think some of it was because I was very focused on the plot. I was very focused on, like, Johnny Truant as a character. That whenever there would be talk of, like, Karen, like, like we, we talked about this briefly, how there's always a focus on her sp- yeah, that's like, that's really creepy. Weird. Like, there's a focus on her smile. There's a focus on her history as, like, a model. Like, and every time and she's mentioned, it is putting forth her relationship to either her children or, like, her husband or the other men in her life who she cheated on her husband with. Maybe, maybe not. Um, that time she kissed that one guy that ended up dying. Like, it's... <laughs> like, like... It, until the very end when she even when she kind of makes her own movie and like all those interviews that that she had with people who like even one guy who was like so do you want a maid's outfit i think a lot of what with karen i wasn't bothered by anything she did i think what bothered me was the way she was described right in in that it, it even like the description of her seemed to take agency away from her well you know there's not a lot of women in this book. There really isn't. There, there's Karen. There's, there's Karen, Karen and there's Johnny's mom. Um, there's Johnny's mom. There is, I guess, technically Daisy, the girl. Daisy, the daughter. The yeah. girl child. The girl child. And there's all of the women that Johnny Truant sleeps with. Yes! And like Thumper. Thumper is always the one I remember, that one stripper. Yeah. Her. She's the main one, but there are others. There's a couple. Because, yeah, several. I never thought about that until you just literally just brought it up. Is that, like, all the majority of the women have no association with Navidson or the Navidson record. They're all associated with Johnny. Yeah, they're they're the women who um, 
transcribed for Zampano, uh-huh. who was blind, uh, and there's some overlap between them and the women that Johnny slept with. Yeah, because I remember he slept with that one lady who was like, what did she say? Even though he, like, was blind, he would somehow be able to tell, like, what she was reading from and where she was putting things and, like, all this mm-hmm. other stuff. Um, and she's like, I didn't really get it, but he was a lonely old guy. Yeah. So you gotta be nice. Yes. Yeah. There's a bunch of little things I'd want to talk about. We the, can do a rapid fire round. We do rapid fire. The the Pinkanees. That messed me up. Yeah, that was, that was a tough chapter. I think the scariest... Um, thing for me wasn't anything to do with the house, but there's a story in a footnote about a ship sinking. Yes! And the guy is trapped in the cabin with a limited supply of air, and the air slowly leaks out of the room. He comes to terms with his own mortality and impending depths in the cold, dark ocean. Yes. That is probably the scariest thing. Yes, it was! It was the scariest thing to me. I totally agree with that. Like, it has nothing to do with the book or the plot, Mm -hmm. except in, like... Here are all the ways that you can die in the dark alone. Yeah, that's, I think, what really scared me about the the house itself. Was that its whole purpose was to isolate and to just oppress. Yeah. Um, And that, that, that I think, is what really scared me. And what really... I had a very strong reaction. Not necessarily positive or negative, but I had a very strong reaction to the end of the book when Navidson finds the window. Because that's the first time he's yes. ever found anything like that. I wouldn't really be able to put it into words. Just that I, I, I just remember reacting to that. Yeah, the fact that strong. they're finally after... Because they make... It's, it's a big deal in the book. It's a very hero's journey, I that, feel. Yeah. And it's a big deal that there are no... There's no, like, crown no, moldings. Yeah. There's no... There's literally a chapter where they just list out all of the house things that this house doesn't have. Like, it's right. just sheer walls. Yeah. And it's all sheer, like, charcoal black. The letters from the asylum. Yeah, those were interesting and added another... That added a level, I think, to Johnny's character. Not necessarily anything to do with the main story. I would say it added a layer of... What is it? What is the technical term for a narrator you can't trust? Unreliable. Yeah, it added a layer to the unreliable narration because I think there comes a question of like because Johnny kind of breaks at the end of the book I feel like and I feel like adding his mother's personal struggles with what it sounded like was schizophrenia obviously I am not yeah we are not psychologists or psychiatrists or psychiatrists and it's totally possible that Daniel Lewski put some symptoms together that in some horrifying cocktail that nor just exists, but it sounded a lot like schizophrenia to me, and yeah. the fact that that's highly hereditary in some it situations. It can be. And the way that he writes at the end of that book, and also in the introduction, where he's losing yeah. periods of time. Yeah, that's what really got me. It was the two, like, there, there was, um, she would date all of her letters, which I noticed he started doing at mm-hmm. the end of the book. Um, but she would date all of her letters to him, and there was that huge break of time when she was really, really bad. And then when she came in the next time, she was talking about, like, her doctors, and how they were helping her, and she was so sorry if she scared him, like, all this sort of stuff. Like, like you can definitely see 
a little bit of the foreshadowing, the parallels between those two experiences. Right. And then the question becomes, is Johnny, is he having some kind of hereditary schizophrenia or is they talk a lot about the book actually inflicting trauma onto people who read and study it. Right. So where, what is the source? Yeah. And and that kind of brings us to what I've sort of settled on. My opinion is that the, the theses of the book, which is he, he sort of states in the very last chapter when he talks about Navidson who, who did not die. Correct. Well, we know he doesn't die. Well, he dies eventually, as we all do. But he didn't die from the house. Right. And we know that right out the gate because he edits the movie. Yeah. He, He is horrifically scarred emotionally and physically. But he lives to have that house in New York with his wife and his kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And the beginning of that last chapter sets down... The idea that the root of all passion is suffering? Or the root of all suffering is passion, excuse me. Which I thought was interesting because I think it's a very... I don't know. I don't know a lot about Buddhism, but it's a mm-hmm. very Buddhist thing to say. Yeah. Passion is the root of suffering, not suffering yeah. is the root... Like, does it go yeah. in both does it directions? go both ways? Because a lot of the, I think what really joins Zampano, Johnny Truant, Davidson, is their obsession with understanding this house. And, and it gets one degree of separation further with every new author. Like, obviously, Davidson wrote, wrote, directed, starred in, however you want to put it, the movie. Zampano either started or continued that manuscript about the film about the house and now Johnny is obsessed with the manuscript about the film about the house like it but they all sort of have that same almost manic sort of passion right. for understanding um which which kind of a lot of with what Johnny reminded me about where he would go through these big highs and these big lows reminded me a lot of manic depression as well yeah which can also be hereditary yeah So it was just interesting. I don't know if I necessarily like bringing the mental illness component in. Right, I don't like that. That's always a dicey thing to, like, pin your analysis on. Yeah, because there's no... And like I said, we are obviously not trained in that sort of thing, first of all. And second of all, it's sort of... To me, like... like It's a cop. Exactly, it's a cop out. I, I, I on it. No, I, I 100% believe that. As a certified trademark mentally ill, I do find that that is a bit of a cop out. It's, it's too similar to the and they woke up and it was all a dream. That's literally exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, like that's, that's it. It's too easy to do that, and I feel like that was sort of why I didn't appreciate the letters at the end so much because it felt like a really weird. Like, undercutting of this mammoth. Yeah, I did almost... There's a part of me that... I don't want to say I liked it, because I didn't. But there was a part of me that took a little bit of dark humor in the story, the fake story Johnny tells about his friend in Seattle, who yeah. let him stay with him, and there were these magic sunshine pills and all this other stuff, because there was, there's like... Again, like, as a person who has struggled to some degree with mental illness, like, 
people will say shit like that to you Mm -hmm. and they think it's real. And I'm like, no, you are taking, you are simplifying a very complicated process. Yeah, those passages felt really, I don't know if this means anything. It felt really brittle to me. Yeah, brittle. I I got a lot of anger. Yeah, and I don't, I was like, where is this coming? And I sort of like, it felt like he was mad at the reader. So I feel like I didn't necessarily take that well. Yeah. Which brings us back to the beginning. Yeah. And the death of the author. And this is not for you. This is not for you. I think at the end end of the day, I, I find House of Leaves very interesting because I think it is very much the product of somebody who knows what the accepted rules in a postmodernist literary world are and just says, screw you. I probably would have been more impressed with the book had I not read Nabokov's Pale Fire. I don't know what that is. Lay it on me. Okay. So this is actually the obvious antecedent for this book, and I have had this confirmed by some critical articles that I've checked. (laughs) I'm that good. Uh, (laughs) You're not like me where I'm just like, have my feelings. Well, I mean, no. I mean, these are my feet. I am a big, in addition to science fiction, I also really enjoy Nabokov. <laughs> this is my life. Um, but Pale Fire is a 1,001 line epic poem uh, written by this, uh, allegedly from the perspective of this um, English professor, essentially, who, you know, taught English, taught writing. Um, it's about his life and his experience and his family and like death and and it's really long. Mm-hmm. It's a fairly it's an okay poem. It's like written in couplets. It's not like hecka fancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's heavily footnoted, oh. and the footnotes are by a separate person. Oh, I um, see. And they give like a critical a quote unquote scare quotes, critical analysis of the poem and of the author of the poem's life, but it also starts creeping into the the footnoter, the editor, essentially, their personal life and their story. And um, I read the book and I took it all as gospel, like, here's this epic poem and here are these footnotes by, and I read this really early in college. I probably still would have taken it as gospel. And, like, they're, mm-hmm. the footnotes are written by, like, this crazy European, like, <laughs> um, exiled royal guy. Like, it's it's a crazy train ride. This it's It doesn't take very long to read, but all the footnotes are in the back instead of incorporated, like, at the bottom of the text. So you have to flip oh. back and forth the whole time. Okay. And it's also really hard to read the poem straight through. But I imagine people who are super committed to this work and they exist will do that. They'll read both the poem and the footnote separately and together. And you know how English people are. Yes, I do. Um, we are a very weird group of people. But I went and I was so excited and I had all these thoughts and feelings about this book and, and these crazy footnotes being by this other guy. Because mm-hmm. um, before when I read footnotes, the footnotes are always by the same person who wrote the text. They're not necessarily... Yeah. They're not necessarily by, like, an editor. And Yeah, annotations by a separate person. So, and then the fact that they let their personal life, which is apparently this crazy thing of them fleeing persecution as the royal family in Eastern Europe where they're from, like, falls. Mm-hmm. Like, that story is in the footnotes. Of this, of this epic poem. So anyway, I went online and apparently just taking it as gospel that like 
that's the way that it's supposed to be read as there are two separate writers. That's apparently very naive. And, like, (laughs) there's critical theory. And there's, like, two or three schools, which is funny because it reminds me of the schools in House of Leaves that appear at the end. Um, It reminds me that, you know, of all that. And, uh, basically, the theory is that the person who – there are a couple different schools. uh, And it's basically, like – even though it's obviously all written by Nabokov, that, like, he, the intention or that the story is set up so that both the poem and the footnotes are actually written by the same author and that the author of the poem is actually just having a go at this other person on the faculty and, like, their life and how they won't stop talking about themselves and, like, putting forward this crazy story about how they're... You know, That's delightful. About yeah, about how they're like escaped royalty from Europe and all this stuff. So I it was a long time ago that I read it, but I'm like, this is a lot of like pale fire and it's it's conception. It's obviously much longer. Obviously. And it is not a thousand and one lines. But it's also funny because um Pale Fire is an epic poem and this is really talking about a movie. Yeah. So, um, I, they have that in common too. Is that it's sort of this cross genre, mm-hmm. cross media, cross me. There we go, cross media experience. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. There's another school of thought that wasn't as funny, so I didn't remember <laughs> it. Uh, but yeah, Pale Fire is if you want to read, if you're really into like that part of it. Yeah, I was um, like really into that, so I might want to read that. Yeah, if you're really into that, Pale Fire is a good choice. The last thing I sort of wanted to talk about... This was not a rapid-fire round. This was not a rapid-fire round. <laughs> we'll get better at this structure, I swear to you, sweet listeners. Sweet, uh, sweet listeners. And by that I mean uh, the four other people in our Dungeons & Dragons group. Love uh, you! Hi! Love you guys. Um, the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about, and I think it really probably should be the last thing, so we should probably wrap up. Maybe, you let me know if this is something maybe I should take the wheel on, because I know visually the book was kind of not... As effective for you because you have no mind theater. How did you feel about the different colored words? I really, like, it added almost no. I was like, this is another gimmick that I'm not about. Okay. I guess for me, I didn't really have that reaction. I did about, like, the red stuff and everything that got, like, crossed out. But it is interesting to me that the word house was in blue and I think that's because when I first started reading this book I was in um, a class that was introduction to critical theory and method and we learned about deconstruction there you go there we go you got there deconstruction um theory which was sort of spearheaded by a Frenchman named Jacques Derrida um, I don't know if you're supposed to say his name like Dorito, but we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> On this episode of Remedial Studies, we talk about... Yeah, Jacques Dorito. We talk about Jacques Dorito. <laughs> Jack Dorito. Um, but he had a lot of ideas that were very rooted in li- lin- linguistic theory at the time, and the theory of language, and how um, he discussed the idea of where meaning comes from, not necessarily on, like, a mythic, um, tropey, big novel kind of level, but not on, on a, um, not on a Jungian level. Not on, but, but on, on, like, a... the individual words. Yeah. And how we get that meaning. 
So to sort of take it down to just the one word, I think what really struck me about that choice, as arbitrary as it may or may not have been, which is entirely possible. It just had a Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice That's true. vibe to me, and it felt weird. Um, <laughs> that's fair. Beetlejuice um, is not here, by the way. <laughs> Beetlejuice is not here. He, Michael Keaton <laughs> did not appear in this from this kitchen. <laughs> I'm disappointed. I'm a little disappointed. Um, but but with deconstruction, a lot of it has to do with signs and signifiers, which is like a word and its association with what it means. And a lot of what deconstruction kind of looked at is do th- does a particular word mean something because that's what it is? Or does it mean something because it isn't anything else? And I found that interesting in the context of the ever-changing nature of the house um, and how different people experience the house differently. Um, to return to those two chapters that we've talked about ad nauseum at this point, um, where Holloway's exploration and Navidson's, where they experience what in essence amounts to the same space very, very differently to the point where like the physical manifestation of it is different. Well, here's the thing, and too, we talked a little bit about Karen does a movie about the house, like, Mm -hmm. that's, I think, in the final cut, or, like, it's gonna be on the DVD extra features. Pretty much, yeah. It'll Um, be in the director's cut. But she goes, and she, like, asks people, what do you think the house means? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that kind of ties into that, like, what does it mean? And people are like, what? Yeah, because it's the whole thing, it's like, a big idea in deconstruction and a lot of other critical theories from that era is do we speak language or does language speak us? And I guess my whole interpretation of that is, is does the house change through its own volition or does it change because of the varying expectations and experiences of the people that come into it? Or does it change because it's a natural phenomenon? Exactly. Since time immemorial. Exactly. Because that's also something that's brought up is that the house has been there minimum since, what was it, the 1600s? When they had those two trapper journals? Was that Uh, 1700s or 1600s? Right. That was uh, maybe even earlier. Either way, very early modern American history. Well, no, because the samples um, that he pulls, they do carbon dating on them. And it's actually like before the birth of like this, like... The the house is actually, like, outside of the universe. Like, the samples are so old. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. That it, that it has existed. And that's why some people think the house is God. <laughs> because. I could see that. Because it's so old that how could it exist? These samples yeah. are so old. Apologies if we weren't very coherent. We are still kind of working out what we want the structure to be. Um, you may, we may edit in some bits later that we yeah. think are hilarious that That's no true. one else will enjoy, but this is really, okay, we're going to be totally honest. This is for us. This is not for you. Wink. What kind wink. of bow did you just put on this whole thing? <laughs> I love it. And thank you for listening to this inaugural episode of the Remedial Studies podcast. If you'd want to get in touch with us on social media, we have a Twitter. We're at Remedial Studies. We also are on Tumblr um, at remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. If you want to send us a good old-fashioned email, we are remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com, all one word. And I think that's it for me, Hannah. What are we going to see next time? Episode two uh, is slated to come out November 14th, which is 
Two Tuesdays from now, we'll be discussing Taylor Swift's new album, Reputation, and we'll also be discussing uh, the Game of Thrones, or some of you might know it as a Song of Ice and Fire series, and uh, French heroic romances. So tune in next time.